AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? So you remember that show Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, right? Yeah, of course. Like, my sister and I were huge fans because my dad had taped some sort of anniversary special for us, so we used to watch it all the time as kids. It had, like, Goldie Hawn and Lily Tomlin. Sammy Davis Jr. was on it. It was, it was great. It is pretty amazing to see some of those old clips. Well, in preparation for today's episode, I was reading this 21-page report. And this thing was filed by the FBI back in 1971, because apparently they were not happy that the show had been making fun of their untouchable director, you know, the J. Edgar Hoover. And <laughs> I'd actually never looked at this report before, but it's actually publicly available online now. And I, I remember we printed a story about this in Mental Floss a while back. You remember this? So I, I don't remember the Mental Floss story, but I, I do know that the FBI was mad about the show's actors pretending that they were, like, talking to Hoover through this bugged, potted plant. Yeah, that was one of them, and there were a few other sketches. But my favorite is how ticked off they got at what now seems like the most harmless joke. In fact, it was actually a knock-knock joke. Are you ready to hear this? Uh, I mean, you know I'm always ready for a knock-knock joke, right? <laughs> All right, here goes then. Knock-knock. Who's there? Hoover. Hoover who? Hoover heard of a 76-year-old policeman. What? That's it? <laughs> yeah, and that, for some reason this really ticked them off. And in the report, that's dumb joke. It's referred to as vicious. I mean, not only is it like a super mild joke, it barely feels like a joke. I know, but the fact that it spawned a 21-page report is just baffling. And if there's one thing we know, it's that you didn't mess with J. Edgar Hoover. So today we're going to take a look back at how Hoover rose to power, how he managed to expand that power over several decades, and what that's meant for our country's evolving relationship to the agency. So let's get started.
Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, showing off his favorite vintage J. Edgar Hoover buttons. That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. Now, I do want to be clear. These are anti-Hoover buttons, from the look of them, at least. You've got, well, there's one of them that says, replace J. Edgar Hoover. He's got another one that says, J. Edgar Hoover is listening to you. And I actually can't make out that what you're closer to him, Mango. What does that yellow one say? Yeah, it says uh, J. Edgar Hoover sleeps with a nightlight. <laughs> oh, burn. <laughs> I know, it's probably my favorite. But Tristan was actually telling me about these earlier, and apparently they're all from the Vietnam War era when Hoover's abuses of power were first coming to light. Well, sleeps with a nightlight is definitely one of the tamer accusations leveled at Hoover over the years. And After looking into the history for today's show, it's easy to understand why he remains such a controversial figure even today. Mm -hmm. From playing fast and loose with civil liberties to collecting secret files on innocent people, there's no question that Hoover's five-decade reign as FBI director came with some heavy costs for the nation as a whole. Yet at the same time, it's also clear that Hoover did a great deal of good for his country, particularly during the early years of his tenure when he helped pioneer many new crime-fighting measures they are still being used today. I mean, these are things like fingerprint files and investing in crime labs. So with that dichotomy in mind, we're going to take a closer look at the man behind the controversy and try to get a better sense of both the good and the bad of Hoover's lifelong reign. Yeah, and I I think you hit the nail on the head when you said lifelong because, you know, he became director of the Bureau of Investigation way back in 1924 when he was just 29 years old. And then when the Bureau reorganized and added federal to its title, this was in 1935, Hoover stayed on as director for an amazing 48 more years. And, you know, just to put that run in perspective, keep in mind that even with lifetime appointments, the longest serving Supreme Court justice only lasted 36 years. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about it, that kind of career dedication, it did come at a steep price for him because, you know, by most historians accounts, the man really didn't have much of a private life. He never married or had children didn't have any notable hobbies or pastimes, and there aren't many personal stories from his adult years to shed life on who he was outside of the office. And, you know, usually it'd be easy to brush this off as just saying it's typical for a workaholic, and some historians suggest Hoover's lack of a private life was by design, though. And, I mean, for a guy whose life mission involved collecting dirt on anyone and everyone, it does make sense that he would have wanted his own life to be as dirt-free as possible. Right, but of course we know that didn't stop people from cooking up all kinds of scandals and conspiracy theories about him anyway. And while I'm sure we'll get to those later, for now I do want to go back to Hoover's early years because that's really our best chance to get a sense of his personal life and who he was. Yeah, okay, I'm down with that. But you're probably going to have to do the heavy lifting on this one because I'm going to share with you the two facts I learned about his early life. One, he was born in Washington, D.C. in 1895. And two, he apparently had a bad stutter. That's all I got. I hope you got more than that. (laughs) Doesn't feel like you really tried there, but it is a start. So Hoover actually grew up just a few blocks from Capitol Hill, and he did, to your point, have a stuttering problem. You know, he joins this long list of famous people who stuttered as kids. Uh, Joe Biden's on this list. Uh, Winston Churchill. Moses was apparently a stutter. Um, Hmm. Marilyn Monroe, apparently her her breathy way of talking was just a way to slow down her speech so she didn't stutter. But uh, Hoover actually did the opposite. He compensated by talking really quickly and taught himself to talk super fast. And in fact, he got so adept at talking that he joined the debate team in high school where he was known for spreading and using his cool, relentless logic, which I guess sounds impressive until you realize he was (laughs) arguing against stuff like giving women the right to vote. 
Huh. You know, I'm curious, though, what about Hoover's home life? Was he close with his family or was he always more or less aloof? Yeah, so Hoover did have two older siblings. He had a brother and a sister, but he was probably closest to his mother. And supposedly she was the family's moral center and also the main disciplinarian. And given those characteristics, I I guess it makes sense that J. Edgar Hoover would have gravitated most to her. I mean, the two of them stayed super close all through Hoover's life, and they even lived together right up until her death. She passed when Hoover was apparently 43 years old. And so what about his dad? Well, Hoover's dad was this low-level government worker, which is why they lived so close to Capitol Hill. And unfortunately, he began to suffer from a mental illness when Hoover was young, which put a lot of pressure on his son and also created something of a rift between them. And as one of Hoover's cousins put it, Hoover couldn't really tolerate that fact. He he couldn't tolerate anything that was imperfect. Uh, It's not exactly the warmest way to deal with a loved one's illness, but all right. So this this makes Hoover the breadwinner of his family at this point. So does he go straight into law enforcement or what does he do next? No, Hoover's first foray into public service was actually as a messenger at the Library of Congress. So he took the gig in 1913 when he started attending college as a law student. And, you know, he's the successful upstart. He he gradually rose through the ranks over there for the next four years. Then once Hoover passed the bar exam, he actually quit the library job. And the very next day, he took an entry-level position as a clerk at the Justice Department. But his time working at the library deeply influenced Hoover. And as he later wrote, the job trained me on the value of collating material. It gave me an excellent foundation for my work in the FBI, where it's been necessary to collate information and evidence. Huh. You know, I I was actually reading about some of the innovations Hoover made at the FBI, and one of them was actually the addition of cross-referencing to the agency's filing system. So you you can kind of see where he got that idea. Exactly. But as formative as that first job was, Hoover really started to come into his own at the DOJ. And in fact, just two years after being hired as a clerk, Hoover had impressed his superiors so much that he was promoted to head of the Bureau of Investigation's General Intelligence Division. And at this point, the U.S. had entered World War I, so Hoover's job was largely to gather intelligence on radical groups within the country. All right, so this is the part that I feel like we learned about in history class because this this is the Red Scare that we're talking about now, right? Yeah, and, and specifically, there was this series of anarchist bombings in the U.S. in 1919, and one of them damaged the home of the attorney general at the time, this guy uh, Mitchell Palmer. So in retaliation, Palmer had the General Intelligence Division carry out these raids to arrest people suspected of being radicals. And over the course of the next two years, these Palmer raids resulted in like the arrest of, I want to say, thousands of accused communists and anarchists. And several hundred of these people were actually deported. Now, were these raids legal? It sounds like Hoover had authorization from his boss to conduct them. But but did they have this big stack of search warrants or anything like that? No, I mean, the the raids were definitely illegal, and there were other problems, too. So, for one thing, most of the accused turned out to be innocent, and many of the confessions that were given were actually highly questionable. They seemed coerced, but luckily for Hoover, all of that backlash over this abuse of power fell on Palmer, who was eventually forced to resign, and Hoover, meanwhile, came away unscathed. But he did learn a lesson from this. Like, he realized from watching the fallout that you want to stay on the good side of the politically powerful. Well, it seems like he took that lesson to heart. I actually read that even though Hoover had about 1,600 files on U.S. senators and congressmen by the time of his death, the FBI never formally investigated or charged a member of Congress while Hoover was in charge of it. Rather than making enemies or drawing attention to himself, Hoover just quietly collected dirt on these guys in case he needed a favor from them down the line. 
But that's not to say that Hoover stayed off the public's radar completely. In fact, I'd say the other big takeaway he had from the Palmer raids was the importance of protecting your agency's image. Definitely. And after Palmer resigned, Hoover was quickly promoted to assistant director of the Bureau of Investigation and then to director just a few years later. And, you know, Hoover had been gunning for this position for a while, and it just wasn't what it was cracked up to be at first. You know, the main problem was what you just mentioned. So the agency was this PR nightmare. It had been racked by scandal in recent years. The, the public didn't actually place that much trust in the people working there. And, in fact, agents weren't even allowed to carry guns or make arrests until 1935, which really shows you how little trust the public had in them. Yeah, and from what I gather, Hoover really cleaned house when he took over there. Like, he fired everyone he considered to be political appointees or just unqualified for the job. He instituted this strict policy of background checks, interviews, physical tests for any new applicants. And this kind of rigor was applied to everything, not just hiring. There were some pretty weird rules he had around there. Like, for instance, Hoover even forbade his agents from drinking coffee at work after 8.15 in the morning. Wait, why? I don't know exactly, but I imagine it was some sort of judgment on people needing these stimulants that late in the workday <laughs> after 8.15 is late, I guess. Just but, weak agents. <laughs> I guess so. But at any rate, Hoover whipped the bureau into shape and Congress began to take notice. They increased the agency's funding, which allowed Hoover to develop the first crime lab for gathering and analyzing evidence. And then in 1935, impressed with what Hoover had accomplished in his time as director, Congress decided to make the Bureau a full-fledged federal agency and, and keep Hoover as its director. And, you know, now that they're finally allowed to carry guns and make arrests, the FBI actually turned its attention from these radical communist groups to armed gangsters. So they're going after these folk heroes like Pretty Boy Floyd and Babyface Nelson. And this obviously helped the agency's public perception when Hoover's cool, collected agents started taking down these thugs. Yeah, you know, and Hoover and his FBI agents were pretty much rock stars by this point. In fact, I saw this old poll from 1936. There were 11,000 American schoolboys who were asked to vote on who they considered the most popular man in the country. And this is just mind-boggling to me. So the president at the time was FDR. He managed to land in, I think it was like seventh place. Uh-huh. But the FBI director, he came in second, second place. I don't even know how many people in the U.S., how many school kids especially, could name the FBI director at this point. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, it's super weird, but it does make me wonder who was in that top spot. None other than Robert Ripley, you know, the creator of uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not. <laughs> I mean, that feels hard to believe. <laughs> well, times have definitely changed. But, you know, I, I do want to talk a little bit more about the FBI's unprecedented popularity. And I think it really speaks to Hoover's skills as a PR man, which is ultimately what helped his agency weather the political storms of the next 40 or so years. Well, that sounds good to me, but first we should take a quick break. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. This summer, click into Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot and get after those outdoor projects with some serious cordless power from Ryobi. 
Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. Leaves and debris are no match for the 40-volt power of the Ryobi leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Tidy up those flower beds and keep your walkways looking sharp with Ryobi's 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Yard work, done and done. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at your cordless power source, The Home Depot. Shop now at The Home Depot or homedepot.com. How doers get more done. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the life and times of J. Edgar Hoover. All right, Mango, so I want to talk about Hoover's mastery of public relations because in a lot of ways, he was really the first to bring Madison Avenue PR techniques to Washington. And to give you an idea of what I mean by this, I I want to share this quote from Mark Ambender, who's the author of a book called Deep State, Inside the Government Secrecy Industry. So Ambender writes, quote, one of Hoover's first orders of business after taking the helm at the newly minted FBI was to build an impenetrable shield of public support. He knew that such support would be essential to surviving the hostile political waters of Washington. But his efforts went far beyond a few press releases. He encouraged the creation of pulp magazines, bubblegum cards, and comics. Likewise, he worked with Hollywood to produce films about G-men like Public Enemy's Wife, Show Them No Mercy, and The FBI Story. One film, Public Enemy Number 1, even put Hoover in its ad campaign. I mean, that's ridiculous when you think about it. Yeah, but the common image that we have today of FBI special agents, you know, you think the dark suits, the neckties, all of that actually comes from these efforts. And it's endured for, you know, think about it now, we're talking about 80 years or so. And so it's no wonder that all these schoolboys were looking up to him. Yeah, I mean, it it is amazing to think what a PR genius he was. And I, I did read up a bit on Hoover's Hollywood connections and... It's crazy to think how much sway the studios gave him. He even had final say on which actors could be cast. So for Public Enemy, Hoover interviewed Jimmy Stewart beforehand and then had to give his approval before the studio could use them. I mean, that's especially funny because apparently Hoover considered the movie It's a Wonderful Life to be communist propaganda. I've read that before, <laughs> but it's still just so weird. And that was right after the movie was released in 1946. I mean, that's super strange. And... You know, Hoover clearly liked Jimmy Stewart, but the main character in that movie is the selfless banker in a small town. It's hard to imagine being against it for being communist, right? 
Well, that's true, but the villain of the film, Mr. Potter, he was also a banker, and apparently that was enough for the FBI to conclude that the movie, quote, deliberately malign the upper class. And it's kind of <laughs> funny to read these quotes at this point. And they must have taken this charge pretty seriously, too, because in 1947, the House Un-American Activities Committee actually held a hearing about this. And there was a film critic there. His name was John Charles Moffat. And he was trying to defend the movie in court. And, and here's what he said. He said, I think Mr. Capper's picture, though it had a banker as a villain, could not be properly called a communist picture. It showed that the power of money can be used oppressively and it can be used benevolently. Now, sadly, Moffat's defense fell on deaf ears because the FBI didn't remove the film from its list of suspected propaganda until 1956. I mean, it's crazy to think the FBI once blacklisted what's essentially the most wholesome holiday movie of all time. I know. uh, I, I guess that in a way, like Hoover never really gave up on that work that he did with Palmer. Like, he continued monitoring anyone or anything that he saw as immoral or unpatriotic or suspect in any way, especially communist. Well, that's true. And actually, one high-profile holdover from those Red Scare days was none other than Charlie Chaplin. Now, Hoover had worried about the British actor's rising popularity. He even tried to have him deported at one point, though he could never make it really stick then. Hmm. Then some 30-odd years later, 30 years later, when Chaplin left the country to promote his latest movie, Hoover seized his chance and worked quickly with the INS to bar the entertainer from returning to the States. I mean, think about that. He was holding this over him I know. for 30 years. He could years. really hold a grudge, clearly. <laughs> yeah, and the plan worked, too. So Chaplin decided to stay in Europe, and he didn't come back to the U.S. until... It was time, I guess this was in, I think, 1972, he came back to pick up an honorary Oscar that he'd been awarded. I mean, that's just ridiculous. But, you know, I, I still think Hoover's strangest target was that old Louis Louis song that the Kingsman popularized in the early 60s. And once that song became a hit, all these rumors circulated that it contained a secret message and it had dirty words if you played it backwards or at a slower speed. And... You know, there were tons of rumors like this at the time. I mean, I mean, famously with the Beatles and, and other bands. But uh, there never seemed to be much to them, really. Uh, of course, you could never convince the FBI of that. And especially after the entire state of Indiana banned Louie Louie from the radio in 1964, that's when the FBI launched this massive investigation to determine whether or not there were really hidden obscenities buried in that song. Because... You know, if there had been, that would have violated this federal code against the distribution of obscene material to minors. This is so strange. But I I will admit, I love the idea of Hoover and his G-men just hunched over these record players, <laughs> like straining to find these secret messages, slowing down this stupid song. But, uh, you know, I'm assuming they never found anything, right? Yeah, I mean, of course they didn't. But, you know, it wasn't for a lack of trying. Agents actually listened to this song at every speed imaginable, and they attended Kingsman shows and interviewed the band members, and even studied the statements of teenagers who'd claimed to have cracked the song's codes. But alas, after an exhaustive 30 months, 30 months they spent on this for an investigation, Gosh. the FBI was forced to concede it had been a waste of time. And that was like a great use of money. <laughs> and records. But all they had to show for all their efforts was some uh, wildly off-base transcriptions. And lucky for you and me, those are now declassified documents that anyone can read. So, Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, so these are some of the actual lyrics from Louie Louie that I'm going to read to you. On the ship, I dream she there, I smell the rose in her hair. And after 30 months, this is what Hoover's agents thought that line was. 
And on that chair, I lay her there. I felt my boner in her hair. <laughs> you just made that up. <laughs> no, it's Is that true. really what it yeah, says? Yeah, it's what it actually says. Isn't that terrible? A declassified government document <laughs> says that. that I feel so... like it needs to be classified again. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I like that they were wildly grasping to figure out what this was. Though I, I do guess that after listening to the same track for, what did you say, 30 months, mm-hmm. I, I, I can imagine that you'd start hearing things after that. Yeah, and while we've mostly talked about the sillier side of Hoover's paranoia and the surveillance tactics, I, I, I do want to make sure we talk about the serious consequences of these power abuses because you don't want those lost in the shuffle. You know, throughout the 50s and the 60s, Hoover's lists of terrorists and spies and communist sympathizers was expanded to include anyone who's like an anti-war protester or civil rights leader or civil rights activist. I mean, Hoover saw all these people as subversives, and he saw them as a threat to the stability of the American government, which is why he resorted to break-ins and wiretaps and illegal bugs. It was all a means to cripple their influence. Yeah, and Hoover's treatment of Martin Luther King Jr. was especially chilling to me, and and I actually kind of hate reading about this, but Hoover suspected him of communist leaning, so he ordered King's bedroom bugged, and then he even sent a copy of the recordings to King and his wife. But probably the worst part of that was the tape was accompanied by this anonymous letter that actually encouraged King to commit suicide. It says, King, look into your heart. The American people would know you for what you are, an evil, abnormal beast. There is only one way out for you. You better take it before your filthy, abnormal, fraudulent self is bared to the nation. I mean, I don't even know how Mm -mm. you come up with those kinds of words. It's just, it's, it's terrible. But you, know, you figure, anonymous or not, the Kings had to know these tapes were from the FBI. and Because by this point, word had gotten out about Hoover's practices. And I just would think it would be fairly easy to guess on this one. Yeah, I, I mean, it is funny. You watch, like, talk shows like The View or other things, and, and people have such polarized opinions of Hoover. You know, some people almost regard him as, like, a, an ethical and, and saint-like character. And, and on the other hand, you hear about these abuses to someone like Martin Luther King, and, and it's just hard to picture this person as anything but gray. And, um, you, you know, when you put yourself in Martin Luther King's shoes, too, it's hard to imagine what it would have felt like to have your own country, like, your own government gunning for you like that. And to know there's absolutely nothing you can do about it, right? It's terrifying. I've yeah. actually heard that theory that Hoover was worried King might go communist. But uh, but there's this biographer, um, this writer named Richard Hack, who actually subscribes to a totally different theory. And he thinks that Hoover felt insulted because King had ignored a call from him during the early days of the civil rights movement. And, you know, as we talked about earlier, um, Hoover could obviously hold a grudge. But according to Hack, quote, from that one unanswered phone call for the rest of King's life, he did not have a free moment from the specter of J. Edgar Hoover ever. He tapped him. He followed him. In some sense, Hoover was jealous of MLK. He had a wife. He had a family. He had authority. He had respect. He had everything. And Hoover was jealous. Hmm. I mean, it's an interesting take, and I hadn't heard that before. But, you know, since we're starting to theorize a bit about Hoover's motives I feel like we ought to keep the ball rolling and look at some of the other theories surrounding his life and his work. Definitely. And, of course, there are a ton of juicy rumors out there about someone as controversial as Hoover. And I bet some folks will be shocked to learn just how few of them really hold water. But before we play Detective Ourselves, we should take another quick break. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, 
time ends. Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. This summer, click into Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot and get after those outdoor projects with some serious cordless power from RYOBI. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the RYOBI 40-volt battery-powered mower. Leaves and debris are no match for the 40-volt power of the RYOBI leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Tidy up those flower beds and keep your walkways looking sharp with RYOBI's 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Yard work, done and done. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at your cordless power source, The Home Depot. Shop now at The Home Depot or homedepot.com. How doers get more done. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, Mango, so earlier we talked about how Hoover was able to sort of shape the image of the FBI using pop culture and also just by virtue of the Bureau's more patriotic operations. You think about rooting out communist spies and Nazi saboteurs, for instance, but I got the sense while researching that Hoover was also a master craftsman of his own image. Did did, did you get that feeling, too? Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes back to that idea of Hoover not having a private life, and that was all by design. Like, he was able to foster this air of mystery for himself that really kept people guessing about his true intentions and what he might be up to. And this was true both in the office and at home. And while that certainly gave him a leg up in this political arena where no one was ever truly sure of what Hoover might have on them, it also made him the target of plenty of smear campaigns and conspiracy theories. Right, and probably the most famous of those is that J. Edgar Hoover was gay, that he liked to dress in women's clothes. Mm-hmm. And at first, I thought these rumors caught on only after his death, but you can actually see little hints of them forming back in the 1930s. For instance, there was a magazine article back then that referred to Hoover's mincing gait and <laughs> how a diplomat at a party had commented on Hoover's, quote, conspicuous perfume. And then decades later, stories started to surface about how someone had seen a photo of Hoover in an evening gown or... They'd been invited to a secret party thrown, and everyone there was cross-dressing. But you know, <laughs> none of these claims were ever substantiated, and and really, a few have even been debunked entirely. 
Yeah, so the most compelling evidence I've seen of Hoover being gay was his relationship with Clyde Tolson, who was the second-in-command at the FBI for over 40 years. And during that time, the pair definitely gave people a lot to talk about. Like, they were both lifelong bachelors. They rode to work and dined together daily. They vacationed together. They sometimes wore matching suits to the office. Plus, when, uh, when Hoover died, he left most of his estate to Tolson. And at his funeral, too, it was actually Tolson who collected the folded American flag that gets handed out by the government. But really, that closeness is all there is to go on. Like, Hoover and Tolson were the epitome of professionalism by all accounts. So if there was anything romantic between them, they kept it to themselves. And, of course, there are plenty of historians that point out that if the men were actually anything beyond just colleagues, they probably wouldn't have allowed themselves to be constantly seen together in public. Like, Hoover was just way too discreet and cautious for something like that. You know, it kind of reminds me of the case you hear about in political science called non-falsifiable hypothesis, which is basically when something is impossible to disprove because there isn't any proof for it one way or the other. So you just kind of end up stuck forever in this state of uncertainty. Yeah, but more than that, none of it should really matter anyway, right? Like, I mean, times have changed so much since Hoover's heyday. So, you know, of of course, being gay or or wearing women's clothing isn't as scandalous as it might have been back then. But even without the moral stigma attached, talking about whether Hoover was or wasn't these things really just distracts from what we know about him for certain, which is his work. Like, there's so much to talk about there. Well, definitely. And it does seem ironic that so many of us are still wrapped up in a guessing game about the sexuality of a guy who made his name by spreading these unsubstantiated rumors about people. I mean, we really can't take him to task for that if we wind up doing the same kind of thing to him. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a good point. I I am curious, though, how did Hoover's abuses of power come out in the end? Because obviously it wasn't any rumors or personal scandals that brought him down. So what was it? Well, I was curious about this, too, because I've known for a while that it was mostly after Hoover's death that a lot of these misdeeds came to light. But what I didn't know was that it was actually a group of burglars who got the ball rolling on that, and that was back in March of 1971. This was just a little over a year before Hoover actually died. Now, these burglars were were a group of peace demonstrators, and they were hoping to spark a conversation about the FBI's unchecked surveillance power. And so to do this, they decided to break into a small FBI office just outside Philadelphia, and they decided to steal as many of J. Edgar Hoover's secrets as they possibly could. I mean, this sounds remarkable, right? Like, it's stunning that this happened, but how did these people pull it off? Well, part of it was that they picked the perfect night to pull this heist— because this was on March 8th, 1971. And this was the night of the landmark fight of the century. You know, this was between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. So while the burglars were busy prying open the door of the FBI office and snatching these files inside, you had millions of Americans just glued to their TV set, kind of watching these updates on that 15-round boxing match. Oh, that's really amazing. And, and this plan worked, apparently. It did. The burglars got away and and more than enough evidence with them to prove that Hoover had been using the FBI to illegally spy on everyone from peace activists to civil rights leaders, movie stars, senators, and on and on. But, you know, not long after the break-in, the thieves sent this anonymous package to a Washington Post reporter named Betsy Metzger. Now, inside was a packet of incriminating secret documents, which naturally Betty wrote about and published in short order, But the best part was that the FBI never managed to catch these burglars. Despite Hoover putting more than 200 agents on the case, no arrests were ever made, and the case was officially closed in 1976. Wow. And just two years later, Congress passed the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, 
and it made it so that a warrant is needed to monitor any private citizen. Well, I am glad that something good came from all of this. And still, it's crazy to me that it took so long for someone to finally spill the beans on what Hoover had been doing for like 50 years at that point. Yeah. I mean, in all that time, you'd think that someone would have tried to find dirt on him sooner rather than just like gossiping that, you know, he may or may not be gay. Actually, the FBI had been spying on its own director for years by that point. There were special agents from the Washington field office of the FBI that were regularly assigned to watch Hoover around in secret and and even monitor his house at night. And the operation had the name Who Watch, which Who seems Watch. appropriate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it proved less than effective because, of course, I mean, this, this is J. Edgar Hoover. He caught on quickly to the fact that he was being watched. Yeah, I mean, they should have seen that coming, right? I don't think you can out-snoop a professional snooper, but I don't know. <laughs> That's the but, old anyway, saying. <laughs> that is the old saying. We, we all know that one. But, but I am curious. When it's all said and done, how do you think we should look back on Hoover? I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious that school kids aren't going to rank him as highly as they did in the 1930s. But writing off his entire career doesn't seem right either. Yeah, I mean, Hoover's name still adorns the building at the FBI headquarters, and I actually think that's a pretty apt metaphor for how to approach his legacy in general. Like, at one point, the name was there as a sign of respect and a show of honor, but now people actually say it feels more like a warning of what not to do. So even though some members of Congress have pushed for the name to be removed, and, you know, you can definitely understand why that is, there's this case for keeping it there as a reminder of both parts of his legacy. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. In fact, I read this article by a Hoover biographer named Kenneth Ackerman, and he had a similar take to what we're talking about here. So here's what he wrote. Hoover leaves a bipolar legacy. For better or worse, he built the FBI into a modern national organization stressing professionalism and scientific crime fighting. For most of his life, Americans considered him a hero. He made the G-Man brand so popular that at its height, it was harder to become an FBI agent than to be accepted to an Ivy League college. Oh, wow. But he also stands as a reminder that 48 years of power concentrated in one person is a recipe for abuse. All right. Well, before we close the book on the cautionary tale that is J. Edgar Hoover, I I do think we should dish a little more dirt on him in today's Fact Off. Although I'm not sure that either of us are going to be able to top Tristan's bombshell about Hoover sleeping with a nightlight, (laughs) but, but, uh, but let's give it a shot. So you started the show by talking about the FBI's irritation with Laugh-In and how Hoover really didn't seem to have a sense of humor. And there's another good story along those lines, and it's about Mad Magazine, a magazine both of us loved as kids. So uh, apparently there was an issue from the mid-50s that irked the Bureau because it included this silly game about draft dodging. And the idea was that if you did well in the game, you were then invited to write a letter directly to Hoover requesting a membership card that would classify you as a full-fledged draft dodger. And uh, agents actually visited the mad offices after this came out in New York City. And uh, and William Gaines, the publisher and the legendary editor, he ended up writing his own letter to the director, apologizing and promising never to make fun of Hoover again. And, you know, of course, he couldn't help himself. Like, he broke that promise a few years later when he started referring to Hoover as a vacuum cleaner, calling him the Honorable J. Edgar Electrolux. <laughs> That's pretty good. All right, well, speaking of comedy, of the many, many things Betty White has done in her incredible career, one of them was playing the role of some of the FBI's most wanted in a show that was called This Is Your FBI. The show was actually endorsed by Hoover himself, and it was really just dramatizations of the actual FBI cases. 
I'm not sure if this is on Netflix, but we need to look up the role she played back in 1949. The episode was called The Larcenous Bride. I've got got to see this. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds great. So we've all seen this iconic photo of Elvis and Nixon together in Elvis's White House visit. But what many people might not remember is that Elvis was actually there to petition to become an undercover agent. So in a letter to Nixon, Elvis wrote, quote, I have done an in-depth study of drug abuse and communist brainwashing techniques, and I'm right in the middle of the whole thing where I can and will do the most good. I mean, that's just such an outrageous statement. But (laughs) it's also crazy to think that Elvis showed up for this, like, unannounced visit to the White House to see the president, and he was carrying two guns at the time. Like, one was for his own protection. The other was this gift, I guess, for Nixon. And for some reason, the FBI was impressed enough that they gave him permits to carry a gun in every state. It's even more surprising when you consider that the FBI had this file on Elvis of several hundred pages, but the incident actually helped to fuel the conspiracy theory that Elvis isn't dead. He's just gone undercover. Yeah, clearly. I mean, (laughs) I get it. That's probably what happened. Well, 600 pages does seem like a big file, but it's actually only a third as long as the 1,800-page file the FBI had on Einstein. Oh, wow. I guess his German heritage was always concerning to the FBI, and... They suspected he might be a German spy. And so when Einstein got involved in the Manhattan Project, an FBI report stated, In view of his radical background, the office would not recommend the employment of Dr. Einstein on matters of secret nature without a very careful investigation, as it seems unlikely that a man of his background in such short time became a loyal American citizen. That's crazy. I mean, it is entertaining to read through the publicly available files on celebrities. Uh, Another one was The Grateful Dead, which the FBI originally referred to by saying, it would appear this is a rock group of some sort. (laughs) <laughs> which I agree with. And later yeah. that uh, the LSD originates from San Francisco through a renowned rock group known as Grateful Dead. But uh, apparently there's no real investigation that ever seemed to be carried out. Wow. So it all came out of the Grateful Dead. All mm-hmm. of LSD did in the beginning. <laughs> well, one person the FBI probably liked a lot was Colonel Sanders. He was a big fan of Hoover and even invited him to his birthday party one time. This, of course, you can find in Sanders' FBI file. <laughs> but unfortunately for the colonel, Hoover declined the invitation. I mean, I'd love to go to that party. Ain't no party like a Colonel Sanders party, I feel like. I think so, yeah. (laughs) But uh, there were some artists who were bold enough to stand up to Hoover, like John Steinbeck was one. He wasn't a fan of being spied on, and in one letter to the attorney general, he wrote, Do you suppose you could ask Edgar's boys to stop stepping on my heels? They think I am an enemy alien. It is getting tiresome. And, you know, Hoover actually responded to this. He, he wrote, I wish to advise that Steinbeck is not being and has never been investigated by the Bureau. And, of course, this didn't stop the FBI from continuing to track Steinbeck's actions for another 15 years or so. Wow. You know, since Hoover's passing, Congress has a 10-year limit on being FBI director now. Of course, Hoover served eight different presidents and had an insanely long tenure. But even then, he shouldn't have been allowed to keep the position for so long because the government used to have this mandatory retirement age of 70. But then LBJ lifted the restriction, you know, just for his pal Hoover. (laughs) Well, speaking of that, did you know Nixon once tried to fire Hoover? This was in 1971, but he lost his nerve during the conversation, and he accidentally increased Hoover's powers to expand the FBI's powers abroad instead. <laughs> Sounds like a failed breakup or dinner <laughs> or something. But all right, well, here's where you one get I love. engaged. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Whoops. <laughs> All right, well, here's one I love. Uh, Apparently, J. Edgar Hoover made lots of notes in the margins of memos. I guess it was kind of his thing. And 
Once he was handed a memo with a really narrow margin, and he wrote, watch the borders in the side. But the agents who got it totally misunderstood that he was talking about the page layout and instead started hounding Border Patrol for suspicious <laughs> activities. That's really funny. I love that. And uh, while I normally would say you deserve the honor, I'd instead like to give it to Undercover Elvis, who's been working so hard on all our behalf for so many years now. That just feels appropriate. Thank you, Undercover Elvis, and thank <laughs> you guys for listening. If we've forgotten any great facts about J. Edgar Hoover, we'd love to hear from you. Part-time genius at HowStuffWorks.com. You can always call our fact hotline, 24-7 fact hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS. Or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. But thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Gary Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Do we, do we forget Jason? Jason who? your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.